Chapter 7 of Green Mantle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Vivian Bush, Houston, Texas, on May 19, 2007. Green Mantle by John Buchan. Chapter 7 Christmas Tide. Everything depended on whether the servant was in the hall. I had put Strum to sleep for a bit, but I couldn't flatter myself he would long be quiet, and when he came to, he would kick the locked door to Matchwood. I must get out of the house without a minute's delay, and if the door was shut and the old man gone to bed, I was done. I met him at the foot of the stairs, carrying a candle. "'Your master wants me to send off an important telegram. Where is the nearest office? There's one in the village, isn't there?' I spoke in my best German, the first time I had used the tongue since I crossed the frontier. "'The village is five minutes off at the foot of the avenue,' he said. "'Will you be long, sir?' "'I'll be back in a quarter of an hour,' I said. "'Don't lock up till I get in.' I put on my ulster and walked out into a clear, starry night. My bag I left lying on a settle in the hall. There was nothing in it to compromise me, but I wished I could have got a toothbrush and some tobacco out of it. So began one of the craziest escapades you can well imagine. I couldn't stop to think of the future yet, but must take one step at a time. I ran down the avenue, my feet cracking on the hard snow, planning hard my program for the next hour. I found the village, half a dozen houses with one biggish place that looked like an inn. The moon was rising, and as I approached I saw that there was some kind of a store. A funny little two-seated car was purring before the door, and I guessed this was also the telegraph office. I marched in and told my story to a stout woman with spectacles on her nose, who was talking to a young man. "'It is too late,' she shook her head. "'The Herr Burgrave knows that well. There is no connection from here after eight o'clock. If the matter is urgent, you must go to Schwandorf.' "'How far is that?' I asked, looking for some excuse to get decently out of the shop. Seven miles,' she said. "'But here is Franz in the post-wagon.' "'Franz, you will be glad to give the gentleman a seat beside you.' The sheepish-looking youth muttered something which I took to be a scent, and finished off a glass of beer. From his eyes and manner he looked as if he were half drunk. I thanked the woman and went out to the car, for I was in a fever to take advantage of this unexpected bit of luck. I could hear the postmistress enjoining Franz not to keep the gentleman waiting, and presently he came out and flopped into the driver's seat. We started in a series of voluptuous curves, till his eyes got accustomed to the darkness. At first we made good going along the straight, broad highway, lined with woods on one side, and on the other snowy fields melting into haze. Then he began to talk, and as he talked he slowed down. This by no means suited my book, and I seriously wondered whether I should pitch him out and take charge of the thing. He was obviously a weakling, left behind in the conscription and I could have done it with one hand. But by fortunate chance I left him alone. "'That is a fine hat of yours, Mynheer,' he said. He took off his own blue peat cap, the uniform, I suppose, of the driver of the post-wagon, and laid it on his knee. The night air ruffled a shock of tow-colored hair. Then he calmly took my hat and clapped it on his head. "'With this thing I should be a gentleman,' he said. I said nothing but put on his cap and waited." "'That is a noble overcoat, mine heir,' he went on. "'It goes well with the hat. "'It is the kind of garment I have always desired to own. 
In two days it will be the holy Christmas, when gifts are given. Would that the good God sent me such a coat as yours. You can try it on to see how it looks, I said good-humouredly. He stopped the car with a jerk, and pulled off his blue coat. The exchange was soon effected. He was about my height, and my ulster fitted not so badly. I put on his overcoat, which had a big collar that buttoned round the neck. The idiot preened himself like a girl. Drink and vanity had primed him for any folly. He drove so carelessly for a bit that he nearly put us into a ditch. We passed several cottages, and at the last he slowed down. "'A friend of mine lives here,' he announced. "'Gertrude would like to see me in the fine clothes which the most amiable heir has given me. Wait for me. I will not be long.' and he scrambled out of the car and lurched into the little garden. I took his place and moved very slowly forward. I heard the door open and the sound of laughing and loud voices. Then it shut, and looking back I saw that my idiot had been absorbed into the dwelling of his Gertrude. I waited no longer, but sent the car forward at its best speed. Five minutes later the infernal thing began to give trouble, a nut loose in the antiquated steering gear. I unhooked a lamp, examined it, and put the mischief right, but I was a quarter of an hour doing it. The highway ran now in a thick forest, and I noticed branches going off now and then to the right. I was just thinking of turning up one of them, for I had no anxiety to visit Schwandorf, when I heard behind me the sound of a great car driven furiously. I drew in to the right side, thank goodness I remembered the rule of the road, and proceeded decorously, wondering what was going to happen. I could hear the brakes being clamped on, and the car slowing down. Suddenly a big grey bonnet slipped past me, and as I turned my head I heard a familiar voice. It was Stum, looking like something that has been run over. He had his jaw in a sling, so that I wondered if I had broken it, and his eyes were beautifully bunged up. It was that that saved me, that and his raging temper. The collar of the postman's coat was round my chin, hiding my beard, and I had his cap pulled well down on my brow. I remembered what Blinkiron had said, that the only way to deal with the Germans was naked bluff. Mine was naked enough, for it was all that was left to me. "'Where is the man you brought from Andersbach?' he roared, as well as his jaw would allow him. I pretended to be mortally scared, and spoke in the best imitation I could manage of the postman's high, cracked voice. "'He got out a mile back, Herr Burgrave,' I quavered. He was a rude fellow, who wanted to go to Schwandorf, and then changed his mind. "'Where, you fool? Say exactly where he got down, or I will wring your neck.' "'In the wood, this side of Gertrude's cottage, on the left hand. I left him running among the trees. I put all the terror I knew how into my pipe, and it wasn't all acting.' "'He means the Heinrich's cottage, Herr Colonel,' said the chauffeur. "'This man is courting the daughter.' Stum gave an order, and the great car backed and as I looked round I saw it turning. Then as it gathered speed it shot forward, and presently was lost in the shadows. I had got over the first hurdle. But there was no time to be lost. Stem would meet the postman and would be tearing after me any minute. I took the first turning and bucketed along a narrow woodland road. The hard ground would show very few tracks, I thought, and I hoped the pursuit would think I had gone on to Schwandorf. But it wouldn't do to risk it, and I was determined very soon to get the car off the road, leave it, and take to the forest. I took out my watch and calculated I could give myself ten minutes. I was very nearly caught. Presently I came on a bit of rough heath, with a slope away from the road, and here and there a patch of black, 
which I took to be a sandpit. Opposite one of these I slewed the car to the edge, got out, started it again, and saw it pitch head foremost into the darkness. There was a splash of water and then silence. Craning over I could see nothing but murk, and the mark at the lip where the wheels had passed. They would find my tracks in daylight, but scarcely at this time of night. Then I ran across the road to the forest. I was only just in time, for the echoes of the splash had hardly died away when I heard the sound of another car. I lay flat in a hollow below a tangle of snow-laden brambles, and looked between the pine trees at the moonlit road. It was Stum's car again, and to my consternation it stopped just a little short of the sand-pit. I saw an electric torch flashed, and Stum himself got out and examined the tracks on the highway. Thank God they would be still there for him to find, but had he tried half a dozen yards on, he would have seen them turn towards the sand-pit. If that had happened, he would have beaten the adjacent woods and most certainly found me. There was a third man in the car, with my hat and coat on him. That poor devil of a postman had paid dear for his vanity. They took a long time before they started again, and I was jolly well relieved when they went scouring down the road. I ran deeper into the woods till I found a track which, as I judged from the sky when I saw a clearing, took me nearly due west. That wasn't the direction I wanted, so I bore off at right angles, and presently struck another road which I crossed in a hurry. After that I got entangled in some confounded kind of enclosure, and had to climb paling after paling of rough stakes plated with osiers. Then came a rise in the ground, and I was on a low hill of pines which seemed to last for miles. All the time I was going at a good pace, and before I stopped to rest I calculated I had put six miles between me and the sand-pit. My mind was getting a little more active now. For the first part of the journey I had simply staggered from impulse to impulse. These impulses had been uncommon lucky, but I couldn't go on like that forever. Excel and pluck muck, says the old boer when he gets into trouble, and it was up to me now to make a plan. As soon as I began to think I saw the desperate business I was in for. Here was I, with nothing except what I stood up in, including a coat and cap that weren't mine, alone in midwinter in the heart of South Germany. There was a man behind me looking for my blood, and soon there would be a hue and cry for me up and down the land. I had heard that the German police were pretty efficient, and I couldn't see that I stood the slimmest chance. If they caught me, they would shoot me beyond doubt. I asked myself on what charge, and answered, for knocking about a German officer. They couldn't have me for espionage, for as far as I knew, they had no evidence. I was simply a Dutchman that had got riled and had run amuck. But if they cut down a cobbler for laughing at a second lieutenant, which is what happened at Zabern, I calculated that hanging would be too good for a man that had broken a colonel's jaw. To make things worse, my job was not to escape, though that would have been hard enough, but to get to Constantinople, more than a thousand miles off, and I reckoned I couldn't get there as a tramp. I had to be sent there, and now I had flung away my chance. If I had been a Catholic, I would have said a prayer to St. Teresa, for she would have understood my troubles. My mother used to say that when you felt down on your luck, it was a good cure to count your mercies. So I set about counting mine. The first was that I was well started on my journey, for I couldn't be above two score miles from the Danube. The second was that I had Stum's pass. I didn't see how I could use it, but there it was. Lastly, I had plenty of money, fifty-three English sovereigns and the equivalent of three pounds in German paper, which I had changed at the hotel. Also I had squared accounts with old Stum. 
That was the biggest mercy of all. I thought I'd better get some sleep, so I found a dryish hole below an oak root and squeezed myself into it. The snow lay deep in these woods, and I was sopping wet up to the knees. All the same I managed to sleep for some hours, and got up and shook myself just as the winter's dawn was breaking through the treetops. Breakfast was the next thing, and I must find some sort of dwelling. Almost at once I struck a road, a big highway running north and south. I trotted along in the bitter morning to get my circulation started, and presently I began to feel a little better. In a little I saw a church spire, which meant a village. Stum wouldn't be likely to have gotten on my tracks yet, I calculated, but there was always the chance that he had warned all the villages round by telephone and that they might be on the lookout for me. But that risk had to be taken, for I must have food. It was the day before Christmas, I remembered, and people would be holidaying. The village was quite a big place, but at this hour, just after eight o'clock, there was nobody in the street except a wandering dog. I chose the most unassuming shop I could find, where a little boy was taking down the shutters, one of those general stores where they sell everything. The boy fetched a very old woman, who hobbled in from the back, fitting on her spectacles. Grew Scott, she said in a friendly voice, and I took off my cap, saw from my reflection in a saucepan that I looked moderately respectable, in spite of my night in the woods. I told her the story of how I was walking from Schwandorf to see my mother, at an imaginary place called Judenfeld, banking on the ignorance of villagers about any place five miles from their homes. I said my luggage had gone astray, and I hadn't time to wait for it, since my leave was short. The old lady was sympathetic and unsuspecting. She sold me a pound of chocolate, a box of biscuits, the better part of a ham, two tins of sardines, and a rucksack to carry them. I also bought some soap, a comb, and a cheap razor, and a small tourist guide published by a Leipzig firm. As I was leaving, I saw what seemed like garments hanging up in the back shop, and turned to have a look at them. They were the kind of thing that Germans wear on their summer walking tours, long shooting capes made of a green stuff they call loden. I bought one, and a green felt hat, and an alpenstock to keep it company. Then, wishing the old woman and her belongings a merry Christmas, I departed and took the shortest cut out of the village. There were one or two people about now, but they did not seem to notice me. I went into the woods again, and walked for two miles, till I halted for breakfast. I was not feeling quite so fit now, and I did not make much of my provisions, beyond eating a biscuit and some chocolate. I felt very thirsty, and longed for hot tea. In an icy pool I washed, and with infinite agony shaved my beard. That razor was the worst of its species, and my eyes were running all the time with the pain of the operation. Then I took off the postman's coat and cap, and buried them below some bushes. I was now a clean-shaven German pedestrian with a green cape and hat, and an absurd walking-stick with an iron-shot end, the sort of person who roams in thousands over the fatherland in summer, but is a rarish bird in midwinter. The tourist guide was a fortunate purchase, for it contained a big map of Bavaria which gave me my bearings. I was certainly not forty miles from the Danube, more like thirty. The road through the village I had left would have taken me to it. I had only to walk due south, and I would reach it before night. So far as I could make out, there were long tongues of forest running down to the river, and I resolved to keep to the woodlands. At the worst I would meet a forester or two, and I had a good enough story for them. On the high road there might be awkward questions. When I started out again I felt very stiff, and the cold seemed to be growing intense. This puzzled me, for I had not minded it much up to now, and being warm-blooded by nature, 
It never used to worry me. A sharp winter night on the high veld was a long sight chillier than anything I had struck so far in Europe. But now my teeth were chattering, and the marrow seemed to be freezing in my bones. The day had started bright and clear, but a rack of gray clouds soon covered the sky, and a wind from the east began to whistle. As I stumbled along through the snowy undergrowth, I kept longing for bright, warm places. I thought of those long days on the veld, when the earth was like a great yellow bowl, with white roads running to the horizon, and a tiny white farm basking in the heart of it, with its blue dam and patches of bright green lucern. I thought of those baking days on the east coast, when the sea was like mother-of-pearl, and the sky one burning turquoise. But most of all I thought of warm, scented noons on trek, when one dozed in the shadow of the wagon, and sniffed the wood-smoke from the fire where the boys were cooking dinner. From these pleasant pictures I returned to the beastly present. The thick snowy woods, the lowering sky, wet clothes, a hunted present, and a dismal future. I felt miserably depressed, and I couldn't think of any mercies to count. It struck me that I might be falling sick. About midday I awoke with a start to the belief that I was being pursued. I cannot explain how or why the feeling came, except that it is a kind of instinct that men get who have lived much in wild countries. My senses, which had been numbed, suddenly grew keen, and my brain began to work double-quick. I asked myself what I would do if I were stumb, with hatred in my heart, a broken jaw to avenge, and pretty well limitless powers. He must have found the car in the sand-pit, and seen my tracks in the wood opposite. I didn't know how good he and his men might be at following us for, but I knew that any ordinary Kaffir could have nosed it out easily. But he didn't need to do that. This was a civilized country, full of roads and railways. I must sometime and somewhere come out of the woods. He could have all the roads watched, and the telephone would set everyone on my track within a radius of fifty miles. Besides, he would soon pick up my trail in the village I had visited that morning. From the map I learned that it was called Grief, and it was likely to live up to that name with me. Presently I came to a rocky knoll which rose out of the forest. Keeping well in shelter, I climbed to the top and cautiously looked around me. Away to the east I saw the vale of a river with broad fields and church spires. West and south the forest rolled unbroken in a wilderness of snowy treetops. There was no sign of life anywhere, not even a bird, but I knew very well that behind me in the woods were men moving swiftly on my track, and that it was pretty well impossible for me to get away. There was nothing for it but to go on till I dropped or was taken. I changed my course south with a shade of west in it, for the map showed me that in that direction I would soonest strike the Danube. What I was going to do when I got there I didn't trouble to think. I had fixed the river as my immediate goal, and the future must take care of itself. I was now certain that I had fever on me. It was still in my bones, as a legacy from Africa, and had come out once or twice when I was with the battalion in Hampshire. The bouts had been short, for I had known of their coming and dosed myself. But now I had no quinine, and it looked as if I were in for a heavy go. It made me feel desperately wretched and stupid, and I all but blundered into capture. For suddenly I came on a road and was going to cross it blindly, when a man rode slowly past on a bicycle. Luckily I was in the shade of a clump of hollies, and he was not looking my way, though he was not three yards off. I crawled forward to reconnoitre. I saw about half a mile of road running straight through the forest, and every two hundred yards was a bicyclist. They wore uniform and appeared to be acting as sentries. This could only have one meaning. 
Strum had picketed all the roads and cut me off in an angle of the woods. There was no chance of getting across unobserved. As I lay there with my heart sinking, I had the horrible feeling that the pursuit might be following me from behind, and that at any moment I would be enclosed between two fires. For more than an hour I stayed there with my chin on the snow. I didn't see any way out, and I was feeling so ill that I didn't seem to care. Then my chance came suddenly out of the skies. The wind rose, and a great gust of snow blew from the east. In five minutes it was so thick that I couldn't see across the road. At first I thought it was a new addition to my troubles, and then very slowly I saw the opportunity. I slipped down the bank and made ready to cross. I almost blundered into one of the bicyclists. He cried out and fell off his machine, but I didn't wait to investigate. A sudden access of strength came to me, and I darted into the woods on the farther side. I knew I would soon be swallowed from sight in the drift, and I knew that the falling snow would hide my tracks, so I put my best foot forward. I must have run miles before the hot fit passed, and I stopped from sheer bodily weakness. There was no sound except the crush of falling snow. The wind seemed to have gone, and the place was very solemn and quiet. But heavens, how the snow fell! It was partly screened by the branches, but all the same it was piling itself up deep everywhere. My legs seemed made of lead, my head burned, and there were fiery pains all over my body. I stumbled on blindly, without a notion of any direction, determined only to keep going to the last, for I knew that if I once lay down I would never rise again. When I was a boy I was fond of fairy tales, and most of the stories I remembered had been about great German forests, and snow, and charcoal burners, and woodman's huts. Once I had longed to see these things, and now I was fairly in the thick of them. There had been wolves, too, and I wondered oddly if I should fall in with the pack. I felt myself getting light-headed. I fell repeatedly and laughed sillily every time. Once I dropped into a hole and lay for some time at the bottom, giggling. If anyone had found me then, he would have taken me for a madman. The twilight of the forest grew dimmer, but I scarcely noticed it. Evening was falling, and soon it would be night, a night without morning for me. My body was going on without the direction of my brain, for my mind was filled with craziness. I was like a drunk man who keeps running, for he knows that if he stops he will fall, and I had a sort of bet with myself not to lie down, not at any rate just yet. If I lay down I should feel the pain in my head worse. Once I had ridden for five days down country with fever on me, and the flat brush trees had seemed to melt into one big mirage and dense quadrilles before my eyes. But then I had more or less kept my wits. Now I was fairly daft and every minute growing dafter. Then the trees seemed to stop, and I was walking on flat ground. It was a clearing, and before me twinkled a little light. The change restored me to consciousness, and suddenly I felt with hard intensity the fire in my head and bones, and the weakness of my limbs. I longed to sleep, and I had a notion that a place to sleep was before me. I moved towards the light, and presently saw through a screen of snow the outline of a cottage. I had no fear, only an intolerable longing to lie down. Very slowly I made my way to the door and knocked. My weakness was so great that I could hardly lift my hand. There were voices within, and a corner of the curtain was lifted from the window. Then the door opened, and a woman stood before me, a woman with a thin, kindly face. Grew Scott, she said, while children peeped from behind her skirts. Grew Scott, I replied. I leaned against the doorpost, and speech forsook me. 
She saw my condition. Come in, sir, she said. You are sick, and it is no weather for a sick man. I stumbled after her and stood dripping in the center of the little kitchen, while three wondering children stared at me. It was a poor place, scantily furnished, but a good log fire burned on the hearth. The shock of warmth gave me one of those minutes of self-possession which comes sometimes in the middle of a fever. I am sick, mother, and I have walked far in the storm and lost my way. I am from Africa, where the climate is hot, and your cold brings me fever. It will pass in a day or two if you can give me a bed. You are welcome, she said, but first I will make you coffee. I took off my dripping cloak and crouched close to the hearth. She gave me coffee, poor washy stuff, but blessedly hot. Poverty was spelled large in everything I saw. I felt the tides of fever beginning to overflow my brain again, and I made a great attempt to set my affairs straight before I was overtaken. With difficulty I took out Strum's pass from my pocket-book. "'This is my warrant,' I said. "'I am a member of the Imperial Secret Service, and for the sake of my work I must move in the dark. If you will permit it, mother, I will sleep till I am better, but no one must know that I am here. If anyone comes, you must deny my presence.' She looked at the big seal as if it were a talisman. "'Yes, yes,' she said. "'You will have the bed in the garret and be left in peace until you are well. "'We have no neighbors near, and the storm will shut the roads. "'I will be silent, and the little ones.' My head was beginning to swim, but I made one more effort. "'There is food in my rucksack, biscuits and ham and chocolate. "'Pray take it for your use. "'And here is some money to buy Christmas fare for the little ones.' And I gave her some of the German notes." After that my recollection becomes dim. She helped me up a ladder to the garret, undressed me, and gave me a thick, coarse nightgown. I seemed to remember that she kissed my hand, and that she was crying. The good Lord has sent you, she said. Now the little ones will have their prayers answered, and the Christ kind will not pass by our door. End of chapter 7